Hello and welcome back. It's Benjamin Rose and myself, Gedalia Gutenberg with Mishpacha's home front, a wide-angle view of Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Hello to you, Benjamin. Hello, Gedalia. And since we last spoke, there was a big targeted assassination, a fellow by the name of Salah al-Aruri, which I think is an interesting name because we know that Arur in Hebrew means cursed. And Salah al-Aruri was certainly a cursed individual. Not only is he one of the masterminds of the October 7th Simchas Torah massacre, but he's also one of the masterminds of the three boys that were kidnapped back in 2014 and then subsequently killed. So Israel does get an element of revenge. But aside from that, the most important thing is we knocked off someone who's a real planner. That's how he's been described, that he's not just the number two man in uh, Hamas, but he's the one who organizes everything and he's charismatic. He has military capabilities. He's a strategist, a tactician. And knocking someone off of uh, that ilk hopefully means that we're a little bit safer, but we still have a long way to go. It's obvious. So yes, the honor and nature of Salah al is evident. You've done a good job in describing that. And obviously there's honor Haman, so with Purim looming sometime and dealing with Iran, Persia. So obviously there are profound connections there. And the precise gematrius is beyond the scope of this podcast, but would make Katal grounds for exploration. But I do have to say just about that raid, a lot of, it, a lot of ink has been spilt and gory pictures have been circulated and baklava has been eaten in the aisles of various stores in Brooklyn and on Israeli TV shows. What I think has to be said though, is that there's an element of risk over here. We're going to get, I think, into it. What Iran Hezbollah's response is going to be, there will be a response. This organization does not let things go lying down. But it had to be said that if I were Bibi or the decision makers, given the pinpoint intelligence that indicated that Al-Aruri and his cursed henchmen were gathered around a table smoking hookahs in Lebanon over there, it would be an obvious thing one had to go ahead and carry out the strike because there's no way that you can avoid an opportunity to actually not just take out a senior Hamas mastermind, but actually to restore some Israeli deterrence. Remember, Israel was attacked. How can we forget? Israel on October the 7th, in an enormous psychological blow to Israel's deterrence. It has never really, in the three months since, done anything that could restore the deterrence. It was widely expected they would have to go start a campaign in Gaza. As it was, we've said again and again, it's been grinding. It's been lacking any brilliance, any breakthroughs. It has been simply a function of superior mass and might. And Hamas has had, as it were, everything going their way, more or less. And yet, and for the first time, the opportunity to make Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran, and in fact, the whole axis of evil over there, wake up, sit up and say, that hurt. That is a golden opportunity and one that couldn't be missed. And so, yes, there's an opportunity that we, we now fear the backlash, but it had to be done. That's what I think, Benjamin. When it comes to deterrence, again, I think we're uh, always going to be on the wrong track if that's where we're coming from. We have to take a much more offensive posture. You hinted at it. There is a report from JINSA, the Jewish Institute of the National Security of America. That's what they call themselves. The Washington, D.C.-based think tank, very pro-Israel and very pro-American. There was a report that they sent out last night, which mentioned that for the last couple of weeks, we're losing soldiers at a rate of more than three per day. And what they said, and I'm going to quote from this report, that the higher rate of IDF soldiers killed per day after the fighting pause, remember we had that uh, one week pause uh, for the hostage uh, redemption, 
So the higher rate uh, suggests that Hamas may have exploited, uh, I don't know why they have to say may have exploited, they obviously did, exploited the respite in IDF operations to regroup and prepare more effective attacks, particularly in the Khan Yunus area in the southern Gaza, which is where we're focusing right now. They also said it demonstrates the tremendous difficulties of urban warfare and that Israel's increasing reliance on ground forces, whether as a result of its own operational decisions to mitigate risk to civilians in the more crowded areas of southern Gaza or international pressure, leads to more IDF casualties. That's something we have to stop. We cannot protect Gaza civilians at the expense of IDF soldiers. That's just wrong. It's morally wrong. It's wrong from a Jewish point of view. And it's not how we're going to either win this war or gain uh, our deterrence back. We have to take more proactive measures, whether it's more Moab bombs to clean up the tunnel situation. And the way to do that, of course, is we have to continue to clear out the population centers. Fine, I understand we don't want to just go ahead and bomb when now, there's millions of people there, but on the other hand, we've got to continue to clear out the areas that need to be cleared out, and we need to use destructive force to destroy Hamas's underground infrastructure. Yeah, but I, mean, I agree. I think that's what's worrying here is you just do the math, as you say, two or three a day, and the army has indicated this can continue for the next year. And I think we're all just settling into this routine in which IDF soldiers are killed and IDF soldiers are fighting and yet there's no breakthrough and, and somehow, somehow this is working against us in the sense that Israel has never fought, slogged months-long campaigns. It has always aimed to have very quick campaigns. Yeah, the Yom Kippur War was three weeks and people thought that was a lifetime. Right, they were tailed off into kind of this, the actual troops were in the field for months, but you're right, the actual campaign was lightning. This feels like the wrong, and I don't know what needs to be done to change the dynamic, but for something, perhaps that's not a very clever thing to say, is necessary to remind us we cannot afford to get bogged down in this because it just turns into a quintessential quagmire in which Israel is just bleeding and to what purpose. And I think we need a more urgent discussion about that. Where is this going? And Benyarin, I've noticed that there's been a worrying kind of quiescence about a resignation amongst the people, military commentators, all gets a sense there's no one saying, bang on the table and saying, this has to change. We have to do something different of it. I've noticed that there's, correct me if I'm wrong with you, but the military coverage often in this country often consists of, don't rock the boat because you're criticizing our soldiers in the field and their sacrifices. And that's a totally wrong way to cover things because obviously no one should question at all the growth of the or infantry over there doing what they have to do. But again, the lack of imagination and the thinking, the lack of ability to put solid war aims on the table, that is just feeling to me as it's like, you can't question that and we have this in hand. I don't think anyone has this very much in hand, that I'm just disturbed by the sheer quiescence of the debate around here. I think part of it is because, again, if you're a correspondent, and I'm talking from a situation where I've been both a reporter and an editor and now more of an analyst and commentator, but if you're a war correspondent, you're, as the Hebrew word goes, you're a mishuabad, you're basically in servitude to the facts and to the sources that give you what you consider to be those facts. And you have to report what they're telling you. So I don't think that you're going to get that much from the correspondents, but uh, what we should be getting from the analysts, from the senior military analysts who are now not in the field and can rely on, of course, they still have sources and resources, but they're using their own experience and their own judgment 
Uh, these are the ones who should be uh, questioning things. And the problem is that most of them are left-wingers. And uh, they're also stuck in the same conception that a lot of the uh, military men are, that people like, you know, here's the Alavian, Benny Gantz, and Gadi Eisenkot, you know, all people who also have risked their lives for Israel and uh, top military men. But they're stuck in this concept that we just have, as you said before, a slog along. We can't really do anything to win because then we'll have to use too much force. And as long as that's the case, we're in trouble. And that's where I think the critique has to be aimed. And it has to be aimed by, again, the top analysts and commentators, not by reporters themselves. And it has to be aimed right at the top. But we're still in the situation that the conventional wisdom is, you know, don't name names now. Don't uh, make accusations now because there will be time after the war. And I've disagreed with that all along. We have to have critique and ongoing critique. And if we're going to, as we said, break out of uh, the morass that we're in and uh, have some sort of a breakthrough. We were talking about civilian casualties and the model in which Israel does not inflict those in large numbers, at least willingly. So that takes us over to events further afield, which in Iran yesterday, in which there was these big bombs that seemed to have killed a lot of people at a cemetery during the 40-odd site of a man who was the Soleimani, who people remember was on the top Revolutionary Guards leaders. Right, the fourth anniversary of his targeted assassination. Correct. And a very central moment in the Trump presidency in which he had the guts to actually say, I'm going to ignore all the conventional wisdom on what you can get away with vis-a-vis Iran. And he attacked this incredibly central figure. They've never quite recovered. He demonstrated, by the way, Benjamin, that if you show enough craziness or enough guts, then America's enemies, they'll be put on notice that things are different. And Trump's watch, I think it's fair to say, he projected strength by acts like it. So very quickly, Israel was accused of these bombings. A hundred people died and they seemed to be a lot of civilians, etc. I, for one, refuse to believe that this is Israel. This is totally unlike the modus operandi. Israel has never targeted just release these bombs just like this. It could be. We shouldn't forget there are various opposition groups, domestic opposition groups in Iran. They may have done something like this. Or possibly this is a false flag operation in which Iran wants to show that Israelis are terrorists and so kills lots of its own people. And they want to rally around the flag effect. So they do something, a false flag operation. This, to me, does not have Israel's fingerprints on it. And again, it's just messaging. And I think later in the day, we saw sort of the record come briefings from American and, and European officials saying it doesn't have Israel's fingerprints on it. But, but this all feeds into a question of what Iran actually wants and what they're intending when it comes to Israel's biggest threat, which is the Hezbollah presence of the northern border and the response, therefore, to these two different things, the strike on Salah al-Aruri in Beirut and the events yesterday in the cemetery in Iran. So what your take on that, Minyar? We can't possibly know, certainly at this early stage, who is responsible for those hundred deaths and the bombings in Iran. Uh, we also have to remember that there are boots on the ground. I don't know whether they're Israeli or whether they're mercenary forces, but there are people who, let's say, are on our side in some way, shape or form. And they do have some operational capabilities in Iran. So I wouldn't totally rule out Israeli involvement, but I am happy that at least in the meantime, the U.S. is sticking up for Israel and saying, no, it doesn't look like Israel had any part in it. And, you know, if we can leave it at that, then that would be very good. But no, obviously Iran is looking for a pretext. And there's also the possibility, as you, I think, hinted at, that it could have been an inside job on their part in order to give them an excuse to now do something against Israel. Iran is hung, I think, somewhere is around seven or 800 people this year or last year at this point, 2023, for uh, various crimes against the state. So you know, they have no problem executing people at the rate of two or so per day. 
So I wouldn't put anything past them. I mean, that really is the question though. You can't put anything past them. But to me, what I would put past them at this stage is that they're on a march to war with Israel. Meaning, there was the New York Times yesterday, or this morning, whatever it is, is a report. Some, they've got some briefing from some Iranian officials who wanted a message that they're not looking for a confrontation with the United States at this time. I happen to believe that that is correct. And the reason is like this. But yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. The structure in which Iran, we shouldn't forget that Iran has got one supreme goal in mind at the moment, which is to obviously exert its, project its influence across the Middle East. But they see the ultimate guarantor of the regime's survival is to have a nuclear bomb. They do not want an attack on the nuclear installations, obviously. What they do, therefore, they've constructed Hezbollah as the ultimate second strike capability, meaning as if you have the nuclear architecture, you'd have the nuclear countries have a first strike capability and then one that can survive an enemy retaliation called the second strike capabilities. When, seeing as the Iranians don't possess that, what they do have is a proxies. Hezbollah is the most powerfully armed Iranian proxy, and it exists for one reason, one reason only, which is that should Iran be struck and attacked itself by its enemies, then Hezbollah will be able to release his 150,000 missiles, many of which are accurate. And therefore, I think the dynamic is beyond that Hezbollah does not want, and Iran does not want to fritter away that capability to show its hand, as it were, in fighting for Hamas. We cannot afford to look as if they are doing nothing. And therefore, as from their point of view, as long as they are tying up significant numbers of Israeli troops on the northern border, as they are, as long as they're keeping 150,000 Israeli civilians out of their home, as they are, and as long as they have video evidence they are fighting back against the Zionist aggressor, they will not attack willingly and escalate to a war because they will then have shown their hand and put out the possibility of an Israeli strike on Tehran itself. To summarize, if I'm Iran and Hezbollah, I'm saying, I do not want this to drag into war. But if I'm Israel, I'm saying I can't afford, eventually I have to come up with a solution to get those civilians back home. And therefore, that Israel is heading tentatively in that direction. That does not look good. So one side, yes. One side, not. That's my analysis, Benjamin. I would concern with your analysis and your assessment, and I would take it one step further, that Iran is buying time until they finally develop their atomic weaponry. And that's why it's so important for Israel, the US, the IAEA, and any other international agency or anyone else in the EU who has anything to say about this to make sure that everything is done to prevent Iran from actually uh, manufacturing or obtaining nuclear weapons. If that means attacking Iran, then that has to be done. And you're right, the risk is that then once Iran is attacked, that they unleash a counterattack on Israel via Lebanon. So we have to be aware of that and protect ourselves against that and defend ourselves against that to the best of our ability. But it can't come at the expense of allowing Iran to have carte blanche because once they develop an atomic weapon, God forbid, it's a whole new ballgame in the Middle East. Let's move on to circle back to a topic that we talked about repeatedly, which is the day after, but in a new twist, because what we have yesterday were shocked reports that Israeli cabinet ministers are not just the far-right normal suspects, yes, Klaus Smotch and Shanita Marbengwir, are the regular Israeli Likud ministers were discussing plans to encourage a voluntary resettlement and migration out of Gaza after the war. And there was talk of, if I'm not mistaken, the Congo being asked to take in Gazans, etc., who wanted to escape the hellhole that Gaza is becoming even more. And obviously, 
this has overtones of it's said to be this place so well for the left-wing crowd in which you say, look, Israel is really promoting ethnic cleansing and the racist state and blah, blah, blah. When I see that, I have to say a couple of things. One of which was right in the beginning of the war, you had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal by Ramben Bayak, former deputy head of the Mossad, I think from the Eshatid party, and Dali Dalon from the Likud. They wrote a joint op-ed in which they said that we should be looking at the West, America, and supporters, those who support the Palestinians, should be looking to take in Palestinians, Gazans. And that was one form of it back then. At the time, I was very uncomfortable with it. I said that wouldn't rush at all because of, you know, the politics, the anti-immigration politics across the West. It's since then, we've had Douglas Murray, the British intellectual, who in our own pages referenced that op-ed and said it was one of the worst pieces of writing to come from a pre-Israel soil because this plays terribly into the hands of those who are anti-immigration in Western politics. And when you had, I think in the last few days, trionic attacks on Israel from Tucker Carlson, and he referenced this as well. Immigration politics is poison. We shouldn't be touching any of that. But what I do think, Dunyaman, is that this is part of the way a conversation like this can create leverage and opportunities for new thinking that could open up new horizons. Because we keep saying, this cannot go on. We cannot have two million hostile Gazans next to us, and then we can't remain in this situation. Something has to give. Now, Benjamin, if you look, when I talk about leverage, I learned one thing. How did the Abraham Accords come about? It came about because of leverage. Because if you remember, what happened was that the Israeli right, led by Netanyahu, was going gung-ho for sovereignty, for annexing, for applying Israeli law to most of the West Bank in the Trump presidency. The world got in a panic. The Arab states got in a panic. And magically from that was born the outreach from the Emirates and the Gulf states who said, we don't want sovereignty, then we're going to do a deal with you, right? So the leverage, the possibility of Israel creating havoc and doing something really bold in the Middle East created new opportunity, new leverage for a breakthrough on the diplomatic front. And that is, I believe, what could happen over here. If the Arab states truly think that Israel is going to do something game-changing, Putting pressure on them, the Saudis themselves, to take in a half a million Gazans who they really, really do not want, right? That will itself create leverage for the opening up of new horizons, possibly going to Turkey, possibly going to Egypt, possibly going anywhere. But in other words, leverage is good for Israel. That's my take. We have to keep two things in mind, Gedalia, in addition to that. One of them is that, as I've mentioned before, and as we've discussed on this podcast, uh, more than 70% of the homes in Gaza have been destroyed. There's nothing for these people to come back to. I've seen videos, I'm sure you have too, where people have gone back to their homes in northern Gaza and they've been confronted by looters in their house at the time that they're trying to salvage whatever they have and the looters have already come in and they've taken everything away. So there's nothing to come back to and it's not going to be rebuilt. Who's going to rebuild it? We're not doing it in Israel. The U.S. isn't going to do it. They have their own uh, problems, $34 trillion in debt, and they can't even pass a $106 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and border security. So they're not going to spend that kind of money to reconstruct Gaza. The UAE isn't going to do it. Hamas isn't going to do it. Qatar is not going to do it. And even if they did, it would take years. So we have to be encouraging other solutions, and immigration is one of them. The second thing to remember is that this has happened all over the world in recent years. So there's a lot of people who've left, not always of their own will, but because of war. Millions of people have left Syria in the last decade. Armenians have left Azerbaijan, 
and millions of Afghanistans have left and were chased out of Pakistan. There's a lot of movement of people all around the world. This would not be strange and unusual to have a million or more Arabs leaving for other countries, whether it's other Arab lands or whether it's somewhere in Africa like the Congo or whether it's to European venues. This has been happening for years, if not decades. And this is a conversation that we need to have. And I think it needs to be encouraged. We shouldn't feel guilty about it. But yeah, I agree. And I think it's a question of pressure and time will, are going to deliver. And obviously, uh, Seattle Shrine are going to deliver new solutions. Because I think from the beginning, it's like when Amistral stood by the sea, you had, you know, Egyptians behind the snakes and what have you to in the desert to the left and the right. There was only one way to go forward. And it's become obvious that Israel, October the 7th, is back to the wall. There is no other way to go but forward. And we have to go through with a bit of trust that things are going to turn out better there. I think we haven't done, I think we can conclude the week with, we haven't done a true, honest to goodness, bright spot. Our bright spot has been undermined repeatedly by myself and has been diverted to domestic weapons production and what have you. For me, there is a little bit of a bright spot. There's a couple of videos I'm seeing involving the Miluin Mikim, the reservists who are there busy there fighting in Gaza. One of them was in which there was a nice kumzitz happening in some darkened Gaza living room. Khaled Kobe saw a very nice singing. It was heartening to see, you know, kind of religious or religious soldiers singing together, which is always nice to doing a thriller like that. But there was also something else to happen this week, which is a little campaign of videos from reservists saying to the politicians and to the media, if you've got nothing positive and unifying to say, then be quiet. That's what they said. And they were very rude about it and direct about it. But what they meant was, we're here busy risking our lives for the whole country and you're busy playing politics again. And well, the reason I found that a bright spot is because I'm thinking, we do not know. We'll talk about the day after. There will be a political day after. We've talked that obviously it, has, it means different things to different people. But what I'm hoping is that there will emerge a new centrist consensus that we're going to have to have a less volatile, less vitriolic politics. And that could be led by a critical mass of reservists, both from the right to the left, who are going to say, we have risked our lives. Remember, there's 300,000 reservists. These are an enormous number who, if they are able to be politically active in some way and are inclined to do so and are led in the right way, could become a decisive factor in Israeli politics, a unifying factor, and to be take it more to the center in the sense that the hostility that was over the last year, and I have to say hostility that's ongoing from left-wing media outlets still against plain politics, merely when the war is still, uh, still on, that has to stop. I'm hoping that these singing reservists uh, out there could become some type of a unifying factor in Israeli politics and something a bit of light can come out of all this darkness. But that's my political hope as well. On that high note, I wish you and listeners everywhere a good and peaceful Shabbos. <laughs>